The other issue that I'm taking into consideration and I think emphasizing a bit is that there was this tendency, and in most of these uh, international organizations, is that the world is for and with the English-speaking countries and people, colleagues and scientists. And uh, it is very difficult to have a real global representation on everything we do as we should be. It is formally always a global representation, but I didn't feel it was strong enough because I felt it over the years when I was located elsewhere, all the, the technical documents and you read the list of those involved, the, the meetings who are attended. You contact ministries of health from a number of countries that are not English-speaking countries and you say, ah, why don't you, we are inviting you to come to a meeting, but by the way, the person should speak English. It's almost offensive because the country does not have English as an official language, for example. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Devora Castell. Devorah is a senior global mental health policy expert with more than 25 years of international experience in Europe, the Caribbean, and Latin America, implementing and advising governments on national policies related to mental health systems. She's a strong advocate for the rights of people with mental health issues. She obtained her MSc in psychology from the Universidad Nacional de la Plata in Argentina and her MSc in public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. After completing her studies, Devereux spent 10 years supporting the development and supervision of community-based mental health services in Trieste, Italy. Later in 2000, she joined the WHO as a mental health officer in post-war Kosovo and later on served as WHO representative in Albania. In both countries, she worked closely with the ministries of health to establish comprehensive community-based mental health systems. In 2007, Dever joined the Pan-American Health Organization where she first worked as the mental health advisor for the Caribbean countries and then later at the headquarters in Washington, D.C., providing technical cooperation in the mental health field to the entire region of the Americas. In 2015, she became the unit chief for mental health and substance abuse and since 2019 has been serving as WHO Director of Mental Health and Substance Abuse. Devora, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Maybe we can begin by you speaking to us a bit about what were some of the experiences that shaped your interest and your motivation to work in mental health. I think that I should begin by telling you that when I was a student of psychology in my country, I had the fourth year of the career, the possibility to do some practice in a huge uh, psychiatric uh, institution where at the time there were 3,000 people living. And uh, the conditions of those institutions and the people was everything awful. I I think that they were not considered 
altogether human beings. They were considered just like uh, maybe animals. I mean, things to put aside from the society, people that had lost completely their, their rights, their basic rights as human beings. As soon after that, still a student, I started to work, to volunteer, going there a couple of days a week. And it was uh, very upsetting every time going there because of, again, how they were living, how they... I, I remember a patient that had been there for 48 years because at the time he was with a severe mental disorder. And so his wife... Uh, sent him there at some point. I don't know the details, but then he told the kids, two kids, that their father had uh, passed away, and that's it. He was uh, abandoned completely. And and then it was thanks to the work that we were doing, digging uh, in about uh, these uh, people and their life, that we found the kids, and the kids were initially shocked, but then very Please to realize that their father was alive and to, to have a relationship, to get to know him. And he was a very sweet old guy. I mean, so that kind of situations uh, were uh, shocking for me and in a way inspired me to go after uh, graduating. I could go to Italy, uh, Trieste, where I had studied in the books, a very nice uh, mental health reform had, that had taken place uh, in the early 70s, actually. And so I thought, okay, let me, I, I need to see wh- what can be done. You know, I think that th- that was what motivated me. What do I need to do in order to change the reality, in order to make sure that people, no matter what they're suffering from, what's their illness or the problem they have, are anyway considered as human beings with all their rights respected and recognized. So the big question was why somebody, because of a mental sufferance, and let me stress the word sufferance, somebody for suffering from something is being penalized and sent away from society, placed in an institution and forgotten about. And that was the case in my country but in many, many others. And that was 30 years ago, and it is still now in many other countries. People are penalized because of their mental health. So what I realized when I, I finished my, my studies, as I said, in Argentina, then I moved, I went to visit Italy and I stayed gradually, little by little, year by year, because I could see that mental health could be embedded in the health system. And people with mental health conditions, no matter how severe they are, could be perfectly receiving care in the community, in services specifically designed for them or integrated in general services, and they could live a life like you and me. And so that is what brought me to the public health issue. So I moved away from uh, the, the clinical interest of the individual suffering into public health perspective of how mental health relates to the system and to the population and their rights and and so on and so forth. So it was that, the the engine. And I think that is that situation that brought me a year and something ago to the position I'm here today. Always the fight against something that they consider very, very unfair. 
And that unfortunately, as I just said, is still happening in many parts of the world. As you say, that it continues to be a perspective that's dominant in many parts of the world. So in your work, when you're working with governments or advocating or at the public health policy level, when government partners or other organizations, they show resistance to changing their perspective, moving away from treating mental health issues in the way that it's traditionally been treated, what are some of the tools or approaches or arguments that you use or that help you in trying to advocate for kind of a more holistic mental health approach or policy making? The strategies used are uh, many, from uh, trying to explain how people live. I always touch or try to touch the inner feelings of a person asking if they will send their uh, sister, mother, father, brother, wife, kids, to live in a place like that. Because most of us will not. And so that is one of the, the, the first uh, tools put in place. Okay, think about what, what it really means no? for somebody to be cut off the society and treated in that way. But then beyond that is drafting a number of tools that will help in different ways, will help explaining, informing policymakers about the alternatives. Because what I found out over the time and traveling and interacting with many colleagues from many countries is that in many cases, there is one minister once said to me that uh, we are an alphabet of mental health issues, really ignorant about uh, uh, mental health issues at the policymaker level meaning that there is uh, the stigma that is uh, really part of the society, but also the health system. And, and so a policymaker, whether it is a senior person in the Ministry of Health or, or, or in any parliament or, or anything, unless has any personal reason for knowing more, in general, one would expect that there is limited knowledge. So explaining that there are other alternatives that countries have managed to develop alternatives to the institution that are embedded in the in the health system, that are in the community, et cetera, et cetera, and why that works and why it is even sometimes more economic than the current situation. So that's one level, no more more informative, but technically informing, right? Not just saying it, but proving what, what's available out there. Then we have some other tools that we have developed that are more related to increasing capacity of the health personnel. Because in many cases, in many countries, a physician, for example, and the same is valid for a nurse, they get some basic training at the early years of their studies about mostly not mental health, but psychiatry. So the most uh, clinical aspects of recognizing symptoms and putting names to the disease. And that's it. Immediately, as soon as they graduate, they don't deal with that anymore. A colleague of mine from Canada used to say that when a physician sees somebody crying, he's panicking and doesn't know what to do. And so we'll immediately refer the person to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So that is the lack of skills, capacity that most health colleagues have to deal with people affected by any mental health issue. And so you need to train and refresh some of the knowledge that some of them may have received, but also translate them into practical issues. What do you need to know in order to provide an answer to the person coming 
to you with any kind of complaint. And then there are a number of other training about uh, human rights and what it means to respect human rights according to most recent uh, developments. And then we do develop uh, more innovative tools that will facilitate different health professionals or from the field of mental health respond to the needs in different ways, whether they are specialists or not. And that's a bit what we do. And in interacting with policymakers, we bring all that information to show that things are possible in another way. And something else that we do is to also explain something that we recently, we, the world, is recently calling the return on investment, right? And we explain if we invest on mental health, how much money they will get back in a number of years, money saved from different issues related to a mental health condition. So also the economic reason for investing, because something that I didn't say is that globally, the average of government spending in mental health is 2% of the health budget. So it's really, really little. I was reading earlier today a document of one country that I'm not naming, low-middle-income country, and is spending 0.37 US dollars per year per capita spent on mental health. It's clear that with uh, with that, very little can be done. So we, we advocate with that country, and I have a meeting tomorrow, that's why I was reading, to explain what can be done and how to change a bit the situation. You mentioned this lack of allocating budget to mental health. Do you think that comes from just a country's prioritization of other problems or other reasons? In some cases, mental health intersects with poverty or with violence at home or with different issues. What would you say is one of the main situations or contexts in which this lack of spending can be explained? In a way, I think that the reason for the lack of investment is a bit of what we've been saying before. I mean, traditionally, historically, people with mental health conditions were considered uh, something that will not be uh, recovered, that there was no reason to invest because there was no hope. That's the reason of the institutions. The institutions were born to take care of people. Now they are penalizing, but initially, a couple of centuries ago, were developed to take care of people. And so, okay, the solution is we put them there and that's it. And the institutions, they generated. And so the cost of living there was low because of the bad living conditions. So mental health has not been considered as an illness in the same way that a broken arm is considered a health issue, not an illness, but a health issue. In the same way that a person with uh, diabetes is having a health issue, a person with uh, depression is not. So if society and then the health sector do not consider mental health issues as health issues, do not consider them as relevant as other issues, then there will always be other priorities. And the poorer the country, the challenges are bigger, right? And so the competing with other priorities is even more obvious. But then the stigma has a big role to play. Then you need to know that until 60 years ago, there was no treatment for severe mental health issues. And so then really it was a bit uh, little, little hope there. But then since then, there are a lot of <laughs> ways for people to be better. 
It's like the science evolved, but it didn't make it so clear for everybody else that there is a possibility. There are some of these conditions that are tough to get over with, but then there are others that are easier or that there are some that if you receive some kind of help soon, you will get off the the condition quite soon. If not, you will get stuck for years and years to come. Uh, so that's part of the of the reason. Then some of the issues that you mentioned, such as poverty, there is also some kind of relationship between poverty and mental health because of in countries where there is no easy access to treatment, then if you are poor, you won't be getting the help you need because the health system will not take care of that. So you will need a private practitioner, which you can't afford, etc. Or again, the stigma may be a bit higher. The priorities also may be higher. Nowadays, we know, and that's the reason why we are talking right now about mental health is because there is more and more understanding, bigger understanding that mental health, it is important and that there are things that can be done, but still it's a challenge. You hear governments uh, saying, yes, mental health is important, but then you find out that the budget they assign to mental health is 1% of the health budget. So again, okay, if it is important, I can help you improving the situation, but you need to put a bit more money in it within your current capacities, right? Now, a strategy sometimes is if we have a person with any disease, particularly long-term chronic diseases, there is a big probability that the person will have a concomitant mental health condition. So if you treat the person for the two conditions at once, there are better chances for, for the person to be better in both conditions. Now, then you need a health practitioner that can take care of that, that has enough competencies to do that. So it's, it's like a chain, no? I mean, you need to have then a system that works. But why mental health has to be separated from everything else, I think is uh, sometimes hard to justify. Yes, absolutely. Taking it back to one of your earlier experiences in your first position with the WHO as mental health officer in post-war Kosovo, could you speak to us about that experience and that setting of working in a post-war environment where perhaps also some of your colleagues, your national colleagues, were themselves continuing to process and cope with the after effects or maybe the mental health struggles of living through a wartime experience? I was working setting up policies and trying to develop a system where it was not. And that is something that is important to consider in our current context about how the situation of an emergency could be an opportunity to build something where it was not. Not the famous building back better approach. So, of course, I interacted with local colleagues and, of course, we could discuss about the challenges they have gone through or they were still in the middle of in many cases. But I would say that that was more a personal interaction. While you were talking, it came to my mind, my translator, and uh, how she was telling me what she went through and her family and her neighborhood and her village. And so we will discuss about her situation. Now, what I was doing from my job perspective was trying to make sure that everybody like her, uh, having gone through uh, similar 
or, or even worse situations will have a place where their mental health will be taken care of then and now, 20 years later. So the concern was not just to see if there was a therapy group for her right now at the time. There were many post-traumatic groups uh, working there and so on. Well, that wasn't the concern. The concern was what do we do in order to make sure that whatever is done stays and is sustainable, basically. And so that was a bit what we did and what was my job about. So I interacted with different groups and different partners and always trying to make sure that I, in that case, was uh, respectful of what they have gone through and where they were and where they want to go. So I think that the attention given to their recent history is similar to the attention I could give to anybody's uh, situation in a country that I'm visiting to provide technical support. The reason I mentioned is that one of the struggles that some in aid workers or development workers, especially those whose most of their career is spent in emergency settings, one of the challenges they face is dealing with the emotional impact of their work, and that's something that their organizations sometimes provide support for. And in some cases, some organizations haven't provided enough support for. So from the perspective of internal policies, not necessarily policies for the countries that you're working in, but at an organizational level and the work culture, do you think that over the past 20 or so years, organizations have generally improved their own internal policies about the mental health impact that the work has on their own? staff? It has improved, definitely, but I don't think that enough is happening. I mean, I think there's still a way to go. I I can talk about probably the UN, I don't know, some big NGOs that are sometimes in the exposed in the first uh, role, right, to these uh, situations you are talking about. While I work at the policy level and in the, with the ministry and so on and visiting the delegates and the health centers and these kind of things, I was recalling a colleague in Kosovo that was working with much tougher situations. Let's leave it there. So definitely the impact was different in this colleague than in me. I think that, for example, a couple of years ago, the UN Secretary General launched a mental health policy for the UN that is being developed, implemented gradually uh, in order precisely to strengthen the support that the staff receive from this mental health perspective. I think, again, there is a, a long way to go, but there is more attention definitely than what it used to be. Sometimes, even in the middle of emergencies, I have in some countries or contexts uh, saying to my young colleagues, take a break, go home or talk to the bosses saying, let people have breaks and maintain a routine that is healthy, et cetera, et cetera. Things we are saying also nowadays, but sometimes it's very challenging to do. I recall somebody from a ministry of health in the Caribbean saying to me, but I can't because I don't have the staff to replace them. I can't uh, do more than, than this. Huh? And, and the person saying that to me, a very senior person in a ministry was sleeping himself in the Ministry of Health because his house was destroyed by, by the emergency situation. Sometimes it's very hard. And so what can you do to, to react as soon as possible? We are doing better, but uh, no, not 
yet as much as we should. If some issues cannot be avoided, for example, that, okay, you don't have personnel to rotate properly yourself, well, what do you need to put in place immediately after or how can you compensate, right? These are the things that we are trying to promote in the context of emergency, but not only, because as you know, in many organizations, the working environment, even if it's not in emergency, may be challenging. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. As your career progressed and you began to take on positions of leadership, for example, as the representative of WHO in Albania, or later on when you were working with the Pan American Health Organization, what did you find that in a more senior level, in a position of leadership, what were the unique challenges that you face in terms of leading teams, working on issues that you're passionate about, but perhaps there are setbacks or maybe sometimes something is not handled well, or perhaps having a project or an initiative or a policy effort. And then in the end, perhaps it has a negative impact or it doesn't turn out the way you had imagined. In those situations, what have you found to be approaches or lessons that you've taken away from that that have helped you continue the work and continue to persevere? The argument that I gave you initially at the beginning of the conversation about why I'm doing the job I'm doing is what keeps me pushing ahead and no matter the setbacks. A couple of issues coming to mind when, when you were talking was I, I used to love work with the people directly and uh, then I let that go because I moved into more uh, a public health perspective and then I used to love working at country level and then I let that go because I moved into more senior um, positions that are sometimes more distant from where things really happen. So that is sometimes the challenge is to Remember that what you are doing, even if a bit far away from where things happen, is contributing, what you do contributes to those things happening at country level. So if you do well your job, then there may be more possibilities for something else to happen at country level. And so at the end of the day, more people will get, in my case, that is what interests me, more people will get the care they deserve. That's the end of the equation for me. So I think that all the time, remember that helps. One of the challenges that you have to face when you work in big organizations is the bureaucracy and the time that is taken to fulfill the needs of the organization and not necessarily of the scope of the work you do. And that is unfortunately part of it, a natural part of it, because we are accountable for what we do. So we have to fulfill a number of requests and fill a number of forms and, and documents and reports and plans and uh, endless uh, demands and requests. But it's kind of unavoidable if you want to do more of what you do. So paradoxically, if I want to have a very quiet life, i rather not have mental health relevant to anybody. So I won't get funding to do anything. So I can write a report once a year or a paper once every whatever number of months. And, and that's it. Now, if I want to change things, I need resources to have stuff that will be able to help countries to move ahead or will be able to develop tools that will help countries again, etc. Then in order to do that, I need money. And if I need money, I need to write proposals, I need to justify, I need to argue, I need to make sure that others see how relevant what I do is, etc., etc. So all that will require more time and efforts. That's a bit the 
the challenge or the, or the well, it's not really setbacks, but it's a, a bit of the less pleasant uh, part of the job. But at the end of the day, again, it's okay, but if I do this, then more people will get. And that's also the, the satisfaction because another issue of the work when you get a bit farther away from where things happen is that you risk to lose uh, track of what's happening or to see, or you, in a way you learn to to understand that nothing necessarily happening in the immediate moments that you do something doesn't mean that things will not change. When you look from a distant point of view, you then realize that things have changed. And that has been also thanks to the work you did. And sometimes others help you realizing that. And uh, that's where you find the, the, the satisfaction and the motivation to move ahead. It's not the immediate result of what you do, what you will get. I meet you, you are a donor, I write a proposal, you give me money. That's quite immediate, great, nice. But in most cases, it's not that. It's the regular work, the daily or weekly or monthly efforts uh, that will lead into some change that will happen maybe in a couple of years or so. So that's another perspective that uh, one needs to take to avoid being frustrated and disappointed, but also to to learn how to invest uh, better your time, effort, and capacity. You earlier spoke about the difference of working at the national level versus the regional level. So I wanted to maybe ask you about what have been your experiences with trying to establish or promote partnerships at a regional level? You were with the Pan American Health Organization. So when countries in a region are trying to work together, different governments, different partners in that kind of setting, especially related to investing in mental health issues or working together on policy changes to that effect. What have been some of your experiences? What are maybe some of the issues that come up when different countries with different priorities are trying to work together, but at the same time, they do still have their own national agenda or interests or their own restrictions going into these partnerships? You know, I'm I'm a firm believer that uh, we all have always something to learn from the other, right? And so the same happens for countries. And it is not automatic. It is not everybody can work with everybody else. But there are many more commonalities than what one could see at the first sight. So countries are prioritizing suicide prevention. We talk about the region. You go from your country, Canada, to my country, Argentina, north and south. And we go across all the region and we can pick up countries interested in advancing that area of work from every background level of the economic development, uh, language, and and whatever else. So in every group of countries of region, you will have a few countries that will be interested in uh, advancing that because it is a priority for them. And then it is up to us to generate the opportunity for, for those countries to talk to each other and find how can they uh, learn from each other or what could they benefit from being together. And this has happened a number of times. In some cases, we have one of the countries, developed country, maybe having a role more of advisor to others that uh, are now going through something that this country had 
years ago, but you, if you look at uh, Canada, if you look at uh, the U.S., or if you look at some of the smaller countries in the region of the Americas that are the better off, the more uh, high-income countries, name me one that has solved the entire mental health problems in the country. And you, if you think about it, you won't be able to name any <laughs> because there are uh, challenges in all these countries, no matter the level of development, and there are population groups that are in developing settings and with the challenges similar to those of some developing countries. And you can find, I'm not going to name, but uh, you can find areas in, in any country of the region. So that's why maybe some countries could have an interest to interact with uh, other developing countries because there is always something that they can learn and they can get from the experience that others are having. And so I find it fascinating to actually promote exchange or, or generate common areas of interest or a network within countries and among countries. I think it is very, very interesting. And people enjoy it. That's why there are so many networks uh, that are more or less uh, regional or global or, or a group of countries. I mean, because there is uh, an interest in learning from others and in uh, sharing and contributing to others. I think that one of my first experiences in international cooperation when I was living in Italy, I had some brief consultancies back and forth to another country for Kosovo. And I was impressed by how nice it was for me to be able to contribute to somebody else. So it wasn't just one way because I will go to that country, I will offer what I learned and I was so fascinated with that possibility. But then I will come back and will bring to my work in reality a lot of learnings from the place I was visiting. And so this, this experience, I'm sure that is common in many, many colleagues that do not work in international cooperation, but whenever there is the opportunity to talk about what's happening elsewhere, to visit another reality, come back and think about the, their own reality with a different perspective is, is enriching, is enriching to everybody. I also want to touch on the aspect of the mental health field that you also work on, which is substance abuse or addiction issues. When it comes to addressing those challenges, do you feel or have you experienced that the political will from governments or the objections from partners, is it more when you address specifically substance abuse issues just because of the more political connotation around it? If we were talking about the stigma about uh, mental health, when we move to substances, I think the stigma is even bigger. The blaming a person because of having issues with alcohol or with substance use is pretty normal. You drink, stop drinking. You do drugs, stop doing it. If you have any health issue because of that, it's your fault because you are using that. Stop using it as if it is all a matter of decision, right? So the stigma is higher in both cases. The cultural issues regarding alcohol in particular are having also a role and in many cases are justifying the lack of policies. So, oh, we won't be able to change this because it's a cultural issue. And, uh, and so that means that no matter how bad alcohol could be for health, all that is ignored because it's a cultural issue. And I'm sure that in many equivalent issues, you will not 
accept because of cultural issues if they are damaging your health. And then there are other issues that is very clear, particularly again on alcohol, but also on some of the drugs issues, is that there is a private interest. So there is a big lobby campaign against limiting alcohol consumption. And so there is a clear pressure and a clear policy from the private sector to influence policymakers to avoid issuing policies that will limit alcohol consumption. And this is clear, and no matter how positive the impact of some policies are at country level, like limiting the age of access to alcohol or other policies that are considered best buys to limit alcohol consumption. And no matter the evidence, I was saying, still they are not in place because in many cases, the pressure of uh, alcohol that they don't want to have policies similar to tobacco, etc. Right? So, um, yeah, I think that uh, it is more challenging to move in that field than in mental health in general. Mm-hmm, I see. Have you also been part of initiatives where indigenous healing practices or cultural-based healing practices that have been around in a country for many, many years, have you also been part of efforts to include those within the treatment offered by public health systems or advocate for those being seen as important or being part of the discussion around resources or approaches that public health system incorporates? What we have been trying to do was to actually promote the exchange of knowledge among communities within countries and among countries. We had some meetings organized with indigenous communities from 12 different countries, for example, to promote the exchange on specific topics of interest. And so not every Traditional practice will be equally considered as a real healing practice because some cases are of practices that harm more than than facilitate because are restricting uh, movements or or, or issues like that. But in most of the cases, actually, uh, what you want is try to promote precisely what people recognize as culturally important and so if if there is a trust already given to say traditional healer for example that is very important and so a dialogue between the different communities and the different knowledge and I also including the so-called occidental medicine and the traditional communities I think it is important to learn from each other and to understand what can each contribute to make things better in many countries there is also uh, a considerable development of uh, mental health practitioners within indigenous community members, which makes it even more interesting because then they have, in, in some cases, no, they, are, they, they absorb the new knowledge and they don't connect with their cultural roots, but in many other cases they, they do. And so you have the opportunity of a, a perfect bridge, I would say, between traditional medicine and the traditional culture and the occidental one that sometimes is needed because they can really complement each other. And so I, I find that fascinating because sitting at a meeting and listening for hours, the representatives from the community, the way they explain how things are, is like uh, moving your beliefs, consolidated. Uh, for many years and you kind of uh, 
put yourself in another position and try to uh, realize that things may not always be as you think they are or they were. No? So it is very interesting. It's not, sometimes it's not easy. It requires like everything. I think it requires the interest, the commitment, the willingness to open up and to allow others to say their way of seeing and doing and, and again, learning from each other. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the spectrum, have you also had to uh, navigate or have you experienced maybe the influence or the lobby of the pharmaceutical industry and their interest in trying to also shape public policy? Or is that something that you haven't dealt with directly in your own work? I would say that I'm lucky that my organization is not allowing me to interact <laughs> much with uh, those the private sectors with whom we may have conflict of interest. So we share some meetings here and there, but regularly I do not interact with them. So I, I have a lot to do in my job and a lot of competing priorities and not a lot of capacity in terms of uh, staff and, and so on. So I can't afford to dedicate my time to things that are not my priority and the pharmaceutical industry is not my priority. In 2019, when you became the Director of Mental Health and Substance Abuse, in that role, what have been some of your priorities, as you say, or some of the key policies or programs that you've really been trying to champion? They arrived with some concerns or some interest to see how I could reshape them. And uh, one was that uh, I was lucky enough that the prior year to my arrival, uh, our newly then newly elected director general uh, said that mental health was a priority for his uh, mandate. And so I had the opportunity to shape that as a priority. What does it mean for WHO and what is the priority for us? So I could focus on what I thought was important and in making sure that whatever WHO does or says is for countries to use it. And for countries who need it, of course, who need WHO saying or doing something, right? And so if we come up with the best technical guidelines, but countries do not know them or do not know what to do with them because they don't have the capacity to look at them and translate technically into the reality and make use of them, then for me are useless guidelines. I mean, I think there are many other networks and universities that could develop science unless it's the science for people at country level to do better their job. So my effort has been in directing our efforts to direct benefit of countries. And in order to get there, you need also to strengthen capacities at country level to see how to promote leadership. You were earlier mentioning something about leadership and, and we didn't go that way, but also it's something that is very important in the field of mental health. Whenever there is no leadership, it's very hard to move the agenda forward. So how do you generate, how do you contribute to promote that leadership? So that is one of the directions that we are taking, making sure that whatever we do, it is to get to the countries, but also to make sure that the services at country level change. Because as long as 70% of the budget goes to mental institutions, then we don't go anywhere. Then mental health is not going to be integrated into healthcare because it's going to be what I said at the beginning, isolated, segregated, something that is not part of the health system. We need mental health integrated with other health issues, with primary care. We need it 
uh, with HIV, we need it in non-communicable diseases, a pregnant woman, we need it with a child, we need it with an adolescent. Everybody has to have a viewer perspective and understanding of what can they do to improve the mental health of the person. And the other issue that I'm taking into consideration and emphasizing is that there was this tendency, and in most of these uh, international organizations, is that the world is for and with the English-speaking countries and people, colleagues and scientists. And uh, it is very difficult to have a real global representation on everything we do as we should be. There is formally always a global representation, but I didn't feel it was strong enough because I felt it over the years when I was located elsewhere, all the, the technical documents, and you read the list of those involved, the meetings who are attended. You contact ministries of health from a number of countries that are not English-speaking countries, and you say, ah, we are inviting you to come to a meeting, but by the way, the person should speak English. It's almost offensive because the country does not have English as an official language, for example. So why you expect somebody to be there? Because there is not translation everywhere, because it's expensive, because we don't have money. There are always good reasons behind. But I thought we needed to make an effort to be a bit more inclusive because unless we involve from the very beginning uh, the countries that are more struggling with, we, we won't be able to provide answers that are meaningful for them. We, we keep using colleagues from uh, the UK and the US and Canada and Australia. That's great. But I don't think they know what happens in the rest of the world. Even if there are individuals who are great and have been traveling and working in many countries, it's not the same as having those people from the countries you want to work with. So that's a bit another area that I'm prioritizing. And that means also within my team and partners we work with and so on and so forth. So I could say those are maybe some of the key issues I'm, I'm focusing on since I'm a director. You know, when I joined W2 in Kosovo, I was a consultant. So I entered with the lowest possible <laughs> contractual modality. And I did my career moving from different contexts, uh, one to the other, and just by doing my job. So I, in a way... I feel that uh, I can do what I think needs to be done. I wasn't appointed by, you know, because of my political nothing or country or anything, just for the work done over the last 20 years or more. So I feel that I have won the, the right to do what I think needs to be done by this organization. Absolutely. That's wonderful to hear. As maybe a final question to wrap up our conversation, now, as everyone knows, we're living through the time of the coronavirus pandemic, and some people are saying that the shadow pandemic that is emerging from this period of physical distancing is a mental health pandemic or a mental health crisis. Do you agree with that statement, or do you have particular thoughts on the mental health challenges that are emerging from this global coronavirus pandemic? And what would you say are some of the opportunities, as you say, we have in kind of an emergency context to build better or to address this? And I do think that this is right, that the uh, mental health impact that COVID is having is significant right now, and it will be in the near future. 
The reasons are related to what we already know, right? The, the fear, the anxiety, dying around us, the risk of being sick, the reality of having lost somebody, the challenges of working from home, the challenges of having the kids at home, the loss the employment, I mean, the increased risk of domestic violence against women, against children at home, all of that, all the stress related to many of these issues uh, regarding isolation, etc., all of that is uh, having an impact in our mental health. In some cases, it will go as soon as we get back to normal, whatever normal will be. And uh, others will have to struggle with that for a while. What we know from emergencies uh, in previous experiences in countries in conflict is that one in five persons will develop a mental health condition in the context of the emergency. So if that applies to the current situation, then really the numbers are, are huge, are significant. So there is a lot of uh, talking about mental health. And so we are hopeful that there is going to be more attention right now, not in the future. The same efforts that we were discussing earlier about the need to transform institutions into community services now are more important than ever because you won't be able to provide answer to those who need it from an institution. It has to be in the community, integrated with other issues. So there is an opportunity there. And again, as as mentioned uh, earlier, the, the building back better. We hope that then we can come out of this experience with stronger mental health systems everywhere with services that provide the answer to the different levels of needs that people will have so that we avoid issues to to develop. We we prevent some consequences of those challenges. We could do better if we take action right now. So that's what we are proposing. What can we do now? to improve the situation people are going through in the present time, but also then in the future. Absolutely. Also very relevant to what everyone is going through at an individual level, but also a national level these days and these weeks. Deborah, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to to think loudly about some of these issues that are always interesting to spend some time talking about. So thank you much. It's been a pleasure to learn from you and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I also want to thank our listeners. To keep up with our latest episodes, you can listen to us on your preferred podcast provider and follow us on our social media platforms and join in on the conversation. If you have any listener questions that you would like me to ask our future guests, please feel free to email them to us at rethinkingdevelopmentpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to continuing similar conversations with you all next time. Until then, take care.